Modern life tells us that we can have all the choice in the world, as long as you can afford to buy it. But is there a better way to have a say and decide how we live together? Today's Changemaker Chat is with John Alexander. John is the author of Citizens, a book based on the belief that we can organise our lives beyond the demands of the market. Citizens arises out of John's experience as a self-described ad man, turning away from that space to find a different way to be. Our chat discusses the three stories he's identified as underlying how we organise ourselves. The subject story of the king or strongman who tells us how to all live, the consumer story that says buying will set you free, and the citizen story that says each of us working together has the tools to decide how we should live. This chat was recorded in peak consumer season, just before Black Friday in 2022. For more about John's work, you can also follow the New Citizens Project. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Okay, John, welcome to Changemakers. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you here. And not just here on the podcast, but here in person with me in Sydney. We are in 3D. It's very exciting. It's amazing. I feel like I want to come over and poke you on the shoulder. But before I do that, I want to start off, if you could tell our fantastic audience a little bit about you in particular, can you tell, describe to them what kind of change maker are you? I think I would say I am uh, quite a playful change maker. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm an experimenter, and a, but, but also I'm a, I'm, I, I think I'm a change maker at the level of story. Like I, I, I want to sink beneath the kind of the surface of the changes we need to make and ask what we're, where we're working from and what idea of humanity we're working from. So I, I think I'm kind of coming from deep, but in a kind of playful way. Okay, excellent. I like this. I like the fact that you're interested in story, but it makes me laugh that you're playful because that's good. If we're not having fun, then what's the point, right? There we go. So tell us why. Like, and, and when I say why, like, why did you choose to be this kind of change maker? What Tell us the origin story of John Alexander, that what drew you to making, particularly to this story question, like how did you find yourself wanting to do this kind of work? Where did it all come from? So I really stumbled uh, into my original career, um, which was in the advertising industry. I, I sort of fell into the advertising industry. And, and I remember my first boss describing my job to me by saying, what you've got to remember is the average consumer sees something like 3,000 commercial messages a day. And he said, and your job is to cut through that. You've got to make yours the best. Uh, and for a while, like, um, I was happy making mine the best, and I did all right with that. But then I began to think, what are we doing to ourselves? Uh, what are we doing to ourselves when we tell ourselves we're consumers 3,000-odd times a day? What, what are we doing to our relationships with each other? 
And, and really, this is where this idea of stories started to take shape, because I began to see this work not as uh, just sort of selling stuff to people, but actually as, as, as telling a story. As, as I'd even go so far as to say it's, it's, it's akin to preaching a religion. It's like a kind of priesthood role. And I came to really despise it, actually. I went through a very dark period of my life. Um, uh, the playful me, uh, like what I like to say, I, I, if I'd started an organization at that point, it would have been called the Consumer Doom Project, and I wouldn't be as, uh, oh, <laughs> be no. as fun to talk to. Yeah. But I did. I went through a really dark time. There was a period where I, was, I stood on the platform at Oxford Circus Tube Station in London and, and was physically sick, like just revolted by the way I had come to see who I am. And, and I just want to say, like, I'm not, um, I have many friends working in the advertising industry still, and I think there are ways to do interesting work, but I, but I feel very strongly that the role that that industry is playing in the world is, is not, not terribly helpful. And, and, and having stepped away from that, I guess in a way the completion... Well, just before... Go, but, yeah, yeah. You, you said it's not very helpful. Like, what, what, did you, what was the thing that was causing the doom? Like, what was the thing that was giving you such unsettledness about being in the centre of this consumer ad environment? I mean, I think the, the key moments were in relation to climate. Right, like it's it's just this this, and I, I'd started to I'd been trying to work in on sort of more green stuff. Like uh, the the solution to this challenge is to sell greener stuff, and and people are consumers, and we have to kind of accept that. So we need to sell them greener stuff. And then I was just like, but for every pound that we're spending, like selling trains over planes, or like another twenty is going on the opposite direction, and 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 actually we're not getting at the deeper stuff which is where the holes in our in our lives and our sense of meaning are coming from like there's this it's like it's like this need for identity creation and and relationship with one another and ourselves that we have that's then that's then sort of co-opted by in service of uh, uh, by 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 buying stuff but it's it's like it's turned to that end and it's um and it and it hollows us out I, and I saw, I started to just really, like, I remember one day I was in a meeting where we were discussing, um, uh, we were working, I was working on a retailer, a big retailer, and we were going through the list of hero products for Christmas, and it was like May. And I remember so we got to the one pound Christmas tree, and someone said, and someone around the table said, ah, oh, the one pound Christmas tree, you can almost smell the exploitation, and everyone laughed. And a little bit of me was just like, well, a big bit of me was like, I, and and this is what happens. Like you turn, if you if you sit in those spaces, you can't, and I don't blame those people. Like they're laughing as a kind of survival mechanic, right? Um, and but you turn down the flame, and you turn down the flame, and it and it eventually goes out. And and it, and and the sheer power of these these things and the amount of money that's behind them and the and the insistence of that story as i say 3000 i mean the latest estimates this was 2003 that 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 data that number came from the latest estimates and ethnographic studies are for certain cohorts it's anything up to 10,000 a day and you're like what space does that leave what oxygen is there for another way of being to breathe and and yeah, so just sitting in that and starting to come to that that understanding of who I was, of what I was doing, um, was very painful. Yeah, and so I can imagine how painful. I'm wondering. So 
you're sitting with this dilemma, this sort of toxic environment's eating away at you. You can sense why, right? You, you, we know that there's a longing for something greater than just buying stuff as a solution. So, you know, long story short, you came to this idea of citizens. Yeah. How did that emerge? Or where did, was that long in your history? Or how did that come to be the answer or a, a way through this consumer, consumer space for you? I mean, look, I, the thing that I, that I take as deeply valuable from within that world that advertising world is the is the power of ideas the power of the power of creative expression the power of encapsulating complex and complicated and, and I know those are different things and we might talk about that but like into something that is deeply accessible I've always, I always loved there's a there's a quote from I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes senior as a jurist who uh, said something like uh, I wouldn't I don't give a damn for the simplicity this side of complexity but I give the world for the simplicity the other side of complexity and I think there's something of that 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 really did like was powerful and attractive and I think is really important that is in Adland, and I, and so this this work sort of started the 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 idea that rescued me from from uh, from advertising, although it nearly killed me in another way, was an idea called My Farm, where we tried to hand over decision making on a real working farm to the public by online vote and debate. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, nearly killed me and several animals, as I say. But um, uh, in about 2010, and I, and I followed that idea into the National Trust, a, a big uh, conservation organisation in the UK, um, and uh, sort of made it happen. Like I say, uh, I mean, this was sort of 2010, 2011, and rural, so many issues were in the way of it, including rural broadband. At one point, I found myself digging a trench with a BTO, BT engineer, oh like... My. <laughs> Four days before launch and going ah, but that that was an that was a, an experiment in. I don't think I had the language for this at the time, but it was an experiment in going. What if we used creative skills to invite people into their agency? as citizens, not just to sell them stuff as consumers. Like, let's not just sell people more sustainable food or try and nudge them into consuming better. Let's let's tap into their ideas and their energy and build something. So that's huge, right? To actually think of participation as a as an antidote or even as an alternative to consumption. Had that ever occurred to you before? I don't know. I... I I think I, to some extent, like I, I was aware of, I was aware of campaigns and movements like, like Transition Network. And this was around, like I say, around 2009, 2010 and, and, and Copenhagen, the Copenhagen COP had happened. And, and there was that whole 1010 thing, if you remember, like to reduce our carbon footprints by 10% by 2010. It was, and I saw, saw these movements that had something different about them. But I, I, don't, I don't think I really developed this. Like I had a, I certainly had the revulsion to the language of the consumer and the and the idea of the consumer, I don't think I really developed the the notion that this idea of citizenship until I was at the National Trust and working with started to work on reconnecting children and nature and 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 we did a lovely campaign called Fifty Things to Do Before You're Eleven and Three Quarters that was rooted in the idea in the in the fairly well studied phenomenon that if you develop a personal connection to nature by the age of twelve, then you're more likely to be pro environmental later in life. So Oh, great. Which is really fascinating, this idea of like, uh, as I would now describe it, that you're, you're kind of, you're embedding into citizenship of mm. the biosphere, expanding your sense of self to include the natural world in a way that never quite goes away. Um, 
but it was but at the time I guess I was sort of as I say I'm play I've embraced this side of myself a lot more this sort of playful I'd sometimes say I'm like half man half Labrador oh that's pretty cute <laughs> it makes me quite hard to kick but it's um but it's this thing of like uh, like this I, I think a lot of this started for me as experiments and then understanding and then I went and when I left the National Trust because I was like there's something here I left to go and do a master's degree in philosophy to try and understand these ideas of consumer and citizen but also like the other story that I talk about and work with the idea of the subject and that and and so there's a I mean I know uh the Sydney Policy Lab talks a lot about participatory action research, and I, I actually worked a lot with those sorts of techniques and and the, and and the cycles of action and reflection, right? And like, and not necessarily starting with reflection and planning, but mm. actually starting with doing. And with then doing, kind of, right? Doing and trying and thinking, and then doing some more and thinking right. and more. Yeah, and so that was in some ways the method that you, I think so, yeah, used, which is kind of inspiring actually, because it means that it's totally accessible any of us you know that you're basically saying that you sort of instinctively moved in a direction and found it take shape over time as you tried different things and I think maybe there's a that's interesting I hadn't really thought of it like that there's there's a there is something about this that I believe quite deeply is really it's not that we have to be taught to be citizens instead of being taught to be consumers it's much more that we just have to be given space to be who we most deeply are and I think maybe that's Maybe that's what I did for myself, you know, like naming, I think so much of this is about naming and noticing that we are, we have this weird myth in this time that we're sort of a post-religious, post, uh, post-ritual society. And you and I are having this conversation the day before Black Friday, right? Like, it's Black Friday, and 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 and, it, and if you don't understand that, I've come like as a as essentially a kind of ritual, mm. um, consumer ritual, a consumer ritual, and 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 when you start to see that and call it out, then it's a little like you know in in this in this world of like mind and body, like when you the moment you notice something and name name it, you can yeah. sort of be free of it. Yeah, it's that I think. Maybe yeah. that's what happened with me. Well, I mean, and I love the fact that some of this awareness <laughs> came when you went and did a master's. You know, not everyone goes to university to, to, to find reflection time, although I also went on that journey, so I'm really um, <laughs> I'm really warm to that somewhat odd bend, right? But the, the, the idea of action and reflection, like it's, it's kind of having the space to do both from right. your story. It's the space to act in creative and new and interesting ways, something that not everyone always has. Right. And then the space to reflect on what you're doing to see whether it's working or it needs to be changed. Both of those things as being really important to sort of cultivating citizenship. And, I, and, and now we talk about it in this way and I think about it like the National Trust provided a space for me to act in different ways uh, and the freedom to do that. And then the master, and then the philosophy masters gave the space to reflect. And then new citizenship project, the the consultancy business I co-founded, like, has essentially been a kind of eight, a seven-year research experiment, really, with a terrible consultancy business model. Like, any consultant you ever speak to will tell you that the one thing you must not do is make every project completely different to the last one because you will. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what we did, but um, but, but that's good research, <laughs> right? But it's great research and it's great action. And then the writing of the book has kind of been a reflection again. Yeah. And I'm yep. and I uh, and I guess my a bit of my sort of inquiry now is like, okay, where does this go next? Where does NC, where does new citizenship go? Where do, where does 
what do we what's the next phase of action oh we're gonna well let's we can get to that a little bit in the conversation ah. but just just for for the, for listeners maybe who are not from the united kingdom haven't yeah. heard about the new citizenship project do you want to just describe it for people and sure and, and you know what you tried to do when you set it up in 2014 sure so um we have this line. We say we're, we're, we're an innovation company and, and we help organizations do stuff better and do better stuff because we think of people differently. If you think of people as consumers, the only ideas you will ever be able to come up with are essentially transactions. Um, whether that's mobilizing in terms of NGOs or whether it's selling stuff as a business or whether it's asking for votes as a, as a, as a politician, those are all transactions. If you, thought, if you think of people as citizens, you start by asking, what are we even trying to do in the world? and how can people be part of that? How do we involve them? Uh, and so what we do really is, is we, we play with organizations of all shapes and sizes and we, we say like, what would this organization be and do if people were citizens, not consumers? Internally, externally, like how might the body shop uh, see itself as a platform for activists, not just as a cosmetics retailer? How might the Guardian see its role as enabling people to be citizens, not just as in like informing people and getting clicks on articles. How might Parkinson's UK be a, be a, build a movement of people affected by Parkinson's disease, not provide services for beneficiaries? I think that, that the health, my, my business partner, Irene, who's a, just an incredible woman, uh, came to this work um, through, originally we worked together in advertising and she left and, and she contracted a, 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 she had got an infection in her eye from a contact lens uh, related disease and ended up losing the sight in her eye and became, but became involved in uh, patient organizing and co-production of patient information and uh, co-production of campaigns to change labeling on contact lens packaging and all of this stuff. And when we met again, it was like, she was like, you're theorizing what I'm doing. And I was intending to do a PhD at that point. And she was like, and you're not doing a PhD. Because <laughs> <laughs> she sort of hauled me out. And we, and we went off and did this thing together. And, um, and yeah, and, and, and we're now going, we, I think we've built a set of tools and ideas that we, we really believe in now. Yeah. Well, let's get into the tools. So huh. you've written you've written up like the toolkit in some respects, uh, a deeper reflection on the work that you've done over over many years in this brand new, not you know brand newish book called Citizens. And we think that that's great. And I want to, I guess, take you through some of the, the 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 themes and sort of what you what you talk about in Citizens and what it what it means for for change making. You talk in particular, you know, you're a story guy, a playful story guy, and actually stories are a really important part yeah. of the book. And you use these descriptions of uh, holistic stories that we tell ourselves, big narratives that we tell ourselves, and then you also, the book is also filled with stories of people trying to make change as well. But let's start, I want to start with the consumer story. You know, there are three stories in the book, the subject story, which, you know, feudal kings, still around today, but the consumer story and the citizen story. But let's start with this consumer story. It's the dominant story of our time. What is the consumer story, what is, what is it trying to say about how our world should work and how our values should be practiced? So the consumer story essentially says that the, the, the right thing for us to do is to pursue self-interest on the basis that if everyone pursues their self-interest, that will, that will add up to the collective interest. You know, it's the sort of the invisible hand, the, the social responsibility of businesses to maximize its profits. And what do you mean by self-interest when you're just using that word? 
narrowly defined individuals in the short term. Uh, it's it's sort of what 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 hits the spot now. I guess right, like an economism almost. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the it's the idea that are that you can measure success by material standards of living. You can you can understand and 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 when an economy when when people consume more stuff, like, like we talk a bit about the consumer confidence index, is a very powerful measure of success of society, but also shaper of narrative because it it embeds in our economic systems and and means that what we're that that implicitly and sometimes explicitly the goal of our societies is to increase the increase the amount that people are consuming and it shows up in all sorts of different organizations across sectors so like i say like when when charities think of people as consumers they and, and are stuck in that story whether explicitly or implicitly they end up treating one group of people as donors and they compete for those donors and and make appeals based on status and in self-interest uh when uh, and then they think of another group of people as beneficiaries and they compete to serve those people when we think of democracy through this lens we go we have a consumer democracy where people are encouraged to to where people's only agency is to choose between the options that someone else offers and where they're encouraged to make that choice on the basis of self-interest they're this is this is showing up in in all these aspects. That's the consumer story. So this is one of the things that I really like about the book is that the, that I think often when we think of consumerism, we think of the market and we put a, a little circle around that practice and we think consumer practice happens in the market and only in the market. But what you're actually arguing is that as a story, it infuses across all of our institutions, like you've just described throughout how democracy works and throughout not-for-profit sector works. Let's dig into how, like you've given some general examples. Yeah. I'm keen on hearing some uh, a story perhaps about how the consumer story is affects change makers you know how, like what is it doing to change makers is there maybe a story you could share about how it it is eroding of change making practice in the abstract you know also if i appreciate you might not want to disclose huh. the names of organizations you can go full anonymous if you if you want and, I, and then let's, let's unpack it a little because i think uh, let me put out there i think actually the consumer story is very widespread right. in our not-for-profit sector there's right. you know what you described in terms of donations i think that it's almost hegemonic in right. our not-for-profit sector. And I'm keen to sort of be... It's, I think it's interesting for people to see that as actually a consumer story, not a citizen story, to be able to sort of understand potentially that there might be other ways of working in this space. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think it's it's very much this idea that the in the NGO world, it's the kind of... It's the mobilising instinct a lot of the time. It's like, uh, we, will, we will figure out the intervention uh, and we will do it for you. And your role is to fund us to do it for you, and to click on the things that we that we get you that we that we tell you are vital to click on to do it. Because you're so poor for time that right. we'll do all the hard work. Right. <laughs> we we and it, and there's a hero complex to this. I think is a big part of this. It's like this idea that yeah. So so Greenpeace USA, which isn't my work, but uh, Annie Leonard is is really uh, articulate on this sort of thing. She's like, we've ended up becoming an organisation to which people outsource their agency. Mm. 
and you cannot outsource your agency. Um, and, and, and so Parkinson's UK, for example, which we, who we've done loads of work with, um, uh, and it's quite personal, to, personally close to me, is like you get into this space where you're like, we will uh, identify what should happen. Like there need to be this number of Parkinson's nurses and you need to sign the petition and we need to raise this much money and we will decide where it goes. And, and you're like, this whole organization started out as a society of people coming together to to find ways to 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 improve life together and to and to discover discover a cure together and and when we when we put that thing in between where it's like we will do it for you and we will serve you there's this like i say there's this kind of very tricksy uh thing of we the idea and the language of service which actually is withholding agency. I really love, I've worked a bit with, uh, increasingly over the last year, with, with a guy called Cormac Russell, who's one of the things in the movement of asset-based community development. And Cormac's got some lovely turns of phrase. And he has this thing where he talks about um, helping while walking forwards, hmm. uh, which is like contracting the space for, the, for people. And, and contrasting that with helping while walking backwards, which is opening the space for them to step into. So the work we've been doing with Parkinson's UK has been rooted in the idea of like, what might it look like to, we, we have this like, notional line, and again, ideas are very important to us in our work. We talk about team Parkinson's, um, and the idea that each, each person has their own team, and those teams are part of the bigger team as well. And, and each event is a team coming together. And, like, and I, I think that those, like it's a pretty obvious linguistic trope, but it's, it's a very powerful one. Well, it's sending a really clear message. If you're in a team, the team is active. We know what that means, right? right? You know, play, we play you're team sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're on the arena making decisions about yeah. how things are going to work for us and our disease or whatever the condition is, as opposed to getting someone, you know, sitting in the... in the Being a spectator. Exactly. And this is actually Mark Steers, our mutual friend Mark Steers, uh, uses this analogy in his book. He talks about, in Out of the Ordinary, he talks about the idea that the politics, when politics becomes a spectator sport, and he says something like, our politics needs to be more like village cricket, when everyone's on the pitch and no one knows quite what the rules are. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's fun. Right. Chaos, but fun. But, but I, I think the, the thing I would underline is that, that this doesn't actually eliminate donation and funding and da 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 it, it often but what it means is that what people are doing is buying into something they're not just they're not just procuring change from organizations they're 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 investing themselves into the work of organizations like that one of the most powerful case studies i think that we have is is the work i've been part of both from within and outside at the national trust which is a now a nearly six million member organization in the uk um conservation charity and and the work that we did was really about taking them out, helping them get out of the consumer story frame of being a visitor attraction business, running these glamorous places with a conservation charity somewhere in the background uh, that was looking after those places for you. And instead going, this is a movement of people who, who, who believe that beauty matters and members are vital part of that thing. And, and what we found in some of the shifts we made was that um, 
was that uh, one of my favorite little projects was we, we made a shift from, we helped a, a staff cohort lead their own rebrand, renaming themselves from wardens who had camouflage uniforms and were basically there to kind of protect nature from children. And kill people off. Off the grass. <laughs> and to, to rangers who, were, who had red uniforms and were visible and had social media training to be kind of the connectors. And, like, and, and, and all of this was rooted in this idea that, that it was about like the like people being participants in purpose. And what we found was that the the organization's business model flew. Like because people buying into something are part of something and they and they want to stay part of that. And there's something so I mean I'm listening to these stories and I'm here, like the difference is one of role, right? You're describing a role and this active role to this passive role. I also make it makes me think of what happens when people are passive. Like even though as we speak, many social media platforms are, are dying before our eyes. But I feel like you know what we've what we've previously not seen on Twitter and other social media platforms is what you get when you have a consumer culture where you have pass a relative passivity and people are spectators people just throw things at each other but you don't throw things at each other when you're part of when you're in the team because you, you're too busy doing the work of the team there's a level of responsibility in that role so these the different roles from being a, in a consumer society to being in a in a citizen society yeah. are, are, are radical and actually socially productive like right. such socially so, so much more socially productive so so the one of the little hacks that I'm proudest of <laughs> and the the last part of the book is kind of structured around this is um, we talk about the three principles of participatory organisations. Can you hear some more P's in that, please? Purpose, platform and prototype. <laughs> yes, you can, my dear. Uh, I, like, I sometimes say, I, uh, you can take the boy out of advertising, but you can't take the alliteration no, out of the I boy. I feel right? like we've got a good ad <laughs> But But the, the, that's actually really deliberate. So the, the, that is a hack on what's known as the marketing mix, which is the four P's of marketing, product, price, promotion and placement, which was originally articulated in 1950. And is the book in which it's written is in its 32nd edition, and it is still the Marketing 101 textbook of, of pretty much every MBA course in the world. And that, that mental model, even if you want to start thinking, conceptually you buy the idea of thinking of people as citizens, not consumers, when that is your mental model, you are dragged back into what do I do for people? Yeah, and so purpose platform prototype. It, it is silly, right? Like, but silly works. Um, this is my. You play told this us is the Labrador. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Labrador. But you, but you're going. The questions you're asking then are: What are we really trying to do in the world? That's so big, we actually can't do it for mm. people. We have to do it with them. Platform is like what? What is it that people? What? What structures and processes and opportunities do we offer to make it meaningful and joyful to be part of that? Not just easy and convenient, which is what you do when you're trying to get a consumer to do something because you have to because they're lazy and selfish, right? So you. Mm. And, and then prototype is like, how do you build the energy for this? Like, you don't, you don't. We're not going to flip a kind of utopian switch, and and we're not going to design the next system in the halls of Sydney University, beautiful as they are. Uh, but but we're going to do it by building it on like in action and reflection, right? Yeah, so, just so like those you did P's. with your philosophy around citizenship, just like we discussed earlier. It's perfect. So uh, also, I mean. Uh, Another, like this is a lot of sort of value practices for change makers I can see in these different approaches. Another one that I, I, I saw was when you're making a choice, like when you're asking people to make a choice, yeah. you really often are about saying yes or rejection. Right. You know, and, and often it's about rejection, you know. Right. If you're in a, in, in a uh, consumer mindset camp, change making campaign, it's like 
for this or against this. Like yeah. it's very simple, di- you know, di- dichotomies based on choice. Whereas actually interesting change making, like you just described, is more complex than anyone can fix on their own. It's right. certainly more, and, and requires a sense of creating alternatives, making proposals, which is radically different from this idea of yes or no. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, um, one of my, a woman who's become a friend, a woman called Pia Mancini has this lovely line. She says, democracy in the broadband era can't involve uploading four kilobytes of data every few years. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this, this is like democracy, right? Dem- power, like meaningful power of people is like, is shaping things. It's not, it's not picking between options that are on a shelf. I, I'm trying to think of like the story that be- sort of best encapsulate the, encapsulates this. I, I mean, I, I think the, like one of the most inspiring democratic moments of recent years, I would argue, is the the referendum on abortion in Ireland in 2018. And like surface, like a lot of people know that that 66% of the Irish population voted to legalise access to abortion up to 12 weeks, which was, and and but what not so many people know is that that proposal was formed by a citizens' assembly by 99 randomly selected Irish citizens, deliberating, calling witnesses, uh, hearing all sides of the story and developing a recommendation that was then put to the Irish people. Um, and, and even fewer people know that off the back of the referendum that then followed, the Irish, Ireland is kind of in a crazy bucking of the of what we consider to be the kind of, what, what we conventionally consider to be this sort of age of darkness is, is sort of finding commonality and shared purpose and, and, a, and a standing citizens assembly is at the heart of that. And, and like this, 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 these stories of, of emergence and, and power are actually, when you start to look, everywhere. Mm. But, ah. right, so, you know, uh, the, the book has got many great examples of, of things going well, but you also, you know, you, you're not Pollyanna about it, right. I guess, is, is, I think it's important to, to say these, we need these transformations, we can see the how constraining a consumer story is on making change, and how generative a, a, a citizen story is. But actually, this shift isn't easy. And actually, you describe people are struggling with it. Can you talk through, why is this so hard? Why, why is there, why can it be a struggle? Not just to initiate a citizen approach in our change making, but to stick with it. I think, I mean, look, maybe what I'd say is that the way, the way I see the moment in time we're living in is one where all these three stories are in play. We're in, a, we're in this rare moment when, 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 which I think I would characterise as a kind of contest between these three stories for what, what has dominance in the kind of next phase. And, and, and the story from which we are going into that is the consumer story. And remember the 3,000, 10,000, whatever number a day. Like, that is a big reason why it's hard, because yeah. the background noise is super insistent. But also because in this moment, as the consumer story kind of collapses around us, in the uncertainty that results, the subject story, the, the, the subjects of the king, the authoritarian story, frankly, the idea of a benevolent dictator that we all sort of know doesn't exist, actually, is super appealing. This is why strongman leaders are rising everywhere, because they're kind of going, in uncertainty, I will lead the way. And the real difficulty is that mo- many of the people in positions of power and influence in our societies can only see those two stories. And therefore, they think that their role is to defend the consumer story from the rise of the subject story. Oh, that's quite a profound way of looking at modern debate. Right. 
And so, and in that, it, the direct result of that, I mean, take Biden, like, or democracy versus autocracy. He's not really talking about democracy, actually. He's talking about consumer democracy. He's saying, vote for me, which is kind of, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying, like, I'm, I, was one of, I was watching the midterms all night and, and all that kind of stuff. And that will not be enough. The, the consumer story cannot, we cannot solve the problems of this time from within the consciousness that created them, right? Like, that's the paraphrasing Einstein. Like, we have to, the, on, the only strategy I honestly believe, and I don't think of myself as having this idea, I see this idea as having me, right? Like, but the only, the only, the only strategy from which we can really solve these things is we need to be tapping into the ideas and energy and resources of everyone. We need to be rediscovering ancient wisdoms. We need to, we need to be sinking into these moments and, and facing them together because it's the only thing that works. And the other reason why it's hard so that is because that story isn't off the peg, right? We do know how it works but we know it in, in our bones. Like this is one of the things that's been so powerful about being in Australia and kind of spending time understanding Aboriginal wisdom and so forth. We, we know how to be citizen, as in my language, and, we, and we're remembering it, but it's not, it's not like consumer story and, and subject story are kind of off the shelf. Like we know how they work. And we read them in books, we read they're them on in television. Books. And when we reject one, we can pick the other. Yeah. But that is still a consumer dynamic. The citizen story we have to build. Mm. And we have to figure out the rules. And we have to structure it. And we have to design new institutions. But we have done that before. Like I mentioned the four Ps of marketing. Think about what happened in that post-war period when the consumer story took hold. In a few years, we had the Bretton Woods institutions. We had the European coal and steel community that became the EU. In the UK, we had the National Health Service. We had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Like, we can do like massive institutional innovation. All of those came from within the consumer story, and they were better than what came before. But the task, I think, of this moment in time is to kind of lean into the scale of that challenge and go, what are like, how are we going to redefine the Universal Declaration of Human Rights with everybody? How are we going to redefine the four Ps? How are we going to reinvent the NHS as the national health community, not just the national health service? Like, how, like what are we, how are we going to do that? And, and, and I think we can, and I get super, I see it everywhere, as I say, and I think that the, the, door, the, the doors to that world will open and keep opening, but it's going to take some, some courage and some creativity to do it. So, like, what I love in the book, and, you know, uh, we're getting towards the end of the podcast, but I want you to share this story, which is, <laughs> like, it is not... You're right to say that things are... are, are the citizen story is prototyped, it's existing. You describe what's happened in Taiwan, yeah. for instance, over the last 10 years yeah, as yeah. a very concrete, very specific example. Often doesn't get enough attention from the, from the, from the Western press. Right. But actually, we've got some really specific stories about some extraordinary citizen-based government working. Why don't you tell us what we've learned from what's happened in Taiwan? So I love this story, and it makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. Um, basically, so 
going back 10 years, the, the government of Taiwan tried to launch what they called the Economic Power-Up Plan. And they, and, and they basically said, shush, little people, just go shopping. We'll grow the economy. You do your stuff. We know that's what you want. Full consumer story. Uh, and a group of hackers started to organize and built, built websites that were parallel to government websites and, and basically uh, made it possible the invention of a, the, the, the experience of a different relationship between citizen and state. And they called themselves GovZero. Like, I love ideas, right? Like, geez, and all their URLs were g0v.tw on the end. And people started to use it and da da da. Not massive. But then, uh, then 2014 came, the government tried to rush through a trade bill with mainland China and a protest kicked off, became known as the Sunflower Revolution. People occupied the, the Taiwanese parliament and started debating the clause of the trade bill using GovZero tools. And the GovZero gang got a broadband connection in and streamed what the protesters were doing all over the country and, they were, and, and, they, and this was seen. A critical moment comes, the, the speaker of the parliament came under pressure to beat the protesters out. Everyone thought he was going to, but he didn't. He said, this is what this space is for. And everything flips. Long story short, like the, uh, one of the leaders of the hacker movement became a mentor to a government minister because the municipal elections, loads of candidates got elected who stood by the protesters. Then when there was presidential election, power changed hands and that person became a minister in their own right. And then that person, Audrey Tang, led the Taiwanese COVID response. And, and the Taiwanese COVID response was characterized by the three principles, fast, fun, and fair. And it's the most successful response in the world, really. Second lowest death rate after only New Zealand without ever having gone into official lockdown. Uh, they called it participatory self-surveillance. They, they opened the data. They made the information available to people to make their own decisions. Uh, they trusted their people, is the language Audrey Tang, the, the digital minister, used to me. And they even, they even set up a phone line where people could ring in with ideas for how the country's response could be better. They, they set challenge prizes for people to create apps to track face mask and, and case uh, outbreaks and these face mask availability and these things. And, and, and it was the most successful response in the world. And we don't, as you say, we don't see that story, I think because, because it doesn't quite compute. Mm. But when you, like, it's f like you can go and look this stuff up, find it, like, it's all there, and there's way more as well. Like, they're, the way they're responding to, to the threat of China at the moment, like, you sh like it, there's astonishing things going on. And we've seen Ukraine using an awful lot of these sorts of uh, crowdsourcing approaches and so on in response to Russia. And I think, but I think what I would draw most out of that story is that moment when the speaker acknowledged the validity of the protest. When he, when he reinterpreted, reframed democracy. Mm. And he framed those people not as attackers on democracy, but as, as people, as, as doing it. Yeah, enacting it, really. And, and I think that there's something to learn in that for us in this moment. And I spoke to so many people who said that if he hadn't done that, and they all, no one thought he was going to, old guy, member of the governing party by background, if he hadn't done that, the moment would have passed. GovZero would have gone back to being an arts project, etc. And we're not so far away from that in so many places around the world. Australia at the moment, so ready and ripe in so many ways, like standing on a standing in a space of a new government and a and a and, and with some huge questions about the indigenous voice of the parliament and so forth. Uh, some huge challenges on climate, like what would it be to embrace that and open it up? Britain kind of 
post-Brexit Britain going, trying to find its place in the world again? How might we, like, what moments might be coming that we could, that we could step into on that? Because when you start to see the world through the lens of story, what you're really doing is you're, you're thinking in kind of paradigm, underlying paradigm. And, you're, and when you do that, you're going, I love, there's a, that sort of idea come, is like deeply embedded in complexity theory and like how systems change. And there's this lovely um, phrase that one of the originators of complexity theory is uh, Ilya Prigogine, I think it was, said the world is a dance between patterns and events. <laughs> and it's like, and so events, like we're in these patterns, the dominant pattern is the consumer story, but the citizen pattern is there as well. Yeah. And what are the events? What, what the, how will the events trigger a, a how turning we, point? How do we build the pattern? They? How do we build the pattern? And then, and then what, what are those events that we can be more intentional with? Like transformational change is, is not just a kind of, what I learned from the Taiwan story is transformational change is not just a kind of a pipe dream. It's not a naivety or an idealism. It's a, it's a deep reality, but it does require some intentionality as well. Yes, yes. And I think it's one of those things that people are feeling the need for change now with climate change, with creeping authoritarianism. There is a widespread sense that things are going to change right. in a deep way. And the question is, which way? Right. How can we, in, and your argument is, and I think it's pretty prescient in the book, how can a citizen story be the thing that shifts into the space instead of, say, an authoritarian subject story, which is a risk at this moment as well. Exactly that. Well, John, it's been fabulous having you here on Changemakers. I hope you've enjoyed Australia. We've enjoyed having you. <laughs> and thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me so much. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. We're on Twitter at Changemakers99. And I'm on Twitter at Amanda Tats with two Ts. Still on Twitter. Check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the video content from our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. All of it's on our website.